Amen. Let me invite you to be seated at this time and join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for this wondrous mystery that really is beyond our comprehension as human beings, that in Christ you were reconciling the world to yourself. And Father, we thank you today that those you are reconciling to yourself, you are also reconciling to one another in Christ. And so, Father, I pray, we together pray for your church throughout the world today. We pray that you would be glorified among your people and in your church. And we specifically pray, God, this morning together for your church that's represented by and exhibited in local congregations of baptized believers, those who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, each local church, according to your plan, is an embassy of heaven. Each local church is an embassy of the one true king of the universe. And so, Father, we, we thank you for your church today. And as a local church gathered here in this place this morning, we pray for your church, and particularly we pray for the church community that we're a part of. We pray for the churches of the Southern Baptist Convention. God, would they all, we pray that they would all be marked by truth, by holiness, by unity, and by mission. And so, Father, we also think of this particular church, South Canyon Baptist Church, and we pray that we would be the church that you would call us and have called us to be for your glory. God, thank you for the vocational pastors, for the lay elders, and for the covenant members of this congregation. God, help all of us who are members of this church to safeguard the unity of this church. Help us to share also the responsibility of this church, which is to make disciples, to make more and better disciples. And all of us have a part Help us as members also to support the ministry of this church through using our gifts in ministry and through giving so that ministry can go forth in our congregation and through our church. And we pray also, God, this morning that our members, the members of this church, would seek the community of this church by not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some but that we would be committed to gathering on the Lord's Day. And then beyond that, in homes, around tables, at meals, in life groups, in triads, God, help us to serve one another and love one another as you have called us to as a church. And Father, we pray also for this congregation. We pray for the future. As we think about the future, we pray for you to raise up more leaders. We pray for more leaders to be raised up from within this church, and we pray for more laborers to be sent out from within this church. Lord Jesus, you said the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. And so we pray for you to send out laborers. I pray, Father, and we pray together that this church in the future would be more united, stronger, and more faithful. 
that our church would be more distinctive and at the same time more attractive to the world. Distinctive from the world and attractive to the world. And finally, we pray, God, this morning that this church could be, in the years to come, a category-breaking church. I pray that this church, that we would be pro-life and racially diverse. I pray that we would care about all suffering, and especially eternal suffering. I pray that South Canyon Baptist Church would proclaim biblical marriage like Jesus and be the friend of sinners like Jesus. God, that this church would communicate the grace of Jesus and demonstrate the grace of Jesus. That we would be theologically conservative and liberal in our compassion. And I pray that as your word is preached today, God, as I share your word today with your people, would you use it on this Lord's Day and every Lord's Day as it's proclaimed in this church We pray that you would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me invite you to take your Bibles as we come to God's Word together this morning. And I invite you to turn to Psalm 64. Psalm 64. We're continuing another summer in the Psalms. We've been going through Psalms for the last four summers. This is the fourth summer that we've done the Psalms, and I'm grateful for how God has used our time in the Psalms these summers, and particularly this summer, um, to speak to our hearts. Today, Psalm 64, complaint and comfort. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you, and I would invite you to turn to Psalm 64, page 480 in those blue Bibles. I want you to think about this question before I begin to read through this psalm with you. Do you ever complain? Certainly, right? All of us do. Well, this psalm is a complaint. A complaint from David. Notice how the heading reads, To the choir master, a psalm of David. So this is David who is speaking through the psalm. So let's read. You follow along. Hear my voice, O God. In my complaint, preserve my life from the dread of the enemy. Hide me. From the secret plots of the wicked, from the throng of evildoers who wet their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows, shooting from ambush at the blameless, shooting at him suddenly and without fear, they hold fast to their evil purpose. They talk of laying snares secretly, thinking, who can see them? 
They search out injustice, saying, We have accomplished a diligent search, for the inward mind and heart of a man are deep. But God shoots his arrows at them. They are wounded suddenly. They are brought to ruin with their own tongues turned against them. All who see them will wag their heads. Then all mankind fears. They tell what God has brought about and ponder what he has done. Let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. Let all the upright in heart exult. I was reading a little bit about complaining this week in light of this psalm. And I found an article in the New York Times from the beginning of 2020. Now remember what happened soon after that. Um, But the article was entitled, Go Ahead and Complain. It might be good for you. Well, the article didn't argue that it's always good to complain or that all of the different ways that we might complain and the things that we might complain about are necessarily good things to complain about. But one of the lines that jumped out to me in this article in the New York Times was this. This is a a little phrase that I found. Emotional disclosure is important. And of course, the article was referring to the fact that we need to talk about our feelings with others. Maybe a counselor, maybe a pastor, maybe a friend or family members or spouse. Emotional disclosure, the article says, is important. And in that sense, it can be good for us to talk honestly about our fears, our feelings, our frustrations. And I thought, If it's important for us to do that with one another, it's even more important for those of us who confess Jesus Christ to do that with God through prayer. Through prayer, we should disclose our emotions. Some of us are a little tentative about that, probably because of our church background. Maybe we're somewhat stoic when we pray. But one of the things that comes out so clearly in the book of Psalms is that David and other psalmists didn't pray that way most of the time. They were emotional. They were honest to God. I, years ago, there was a book on prayer entitled that, Honest to God. And I think clearly the book of Psalms helps us to see that that's what we ought to be. And that's what David is being here. He's being honest to God. He is... Engaging in emotional disclosure, which is not only important, but it is essential for those of us who are believers if we're going to grow through and not be badly and sinfully affected by our negative emotions. One of the things I want you to see, notice this real quickly. Notice the word complaint in verse 1 the first verse of this psalm, and then notice the word at the end of the psalm, in the last verse, exult. So you could say this psalm goes from complaint, verse 1, to exult, 
verse 10. And one of the ways we as Christians can process our negative emotions is in prayer to God. And as we do that rightly, as we see how here, in the end, we can come to the place where we can genuinely exult in God. Another thing I noticed this week as I was thinking about and really just looking for different things about the issue of complaining, one of the things I came across was the fact that most companies and even our government has a complaint department. A complaint department. You can file a complaint if you're a consumer in a company you feel like didn't give you what you paid for or do what you expected. You can file a complaint. And companies and the government have staff in this department to listen to you and they're empowered by the company to help you as best they can. One of the things that the psalm, I think, also makes clear is that if you're a Christian, God is your ultimate complaint department. That's who you and I should take our complaints to. And what is a complaint? It is merely an expressed dissatisfaction. And all of us experience that. And when we do, it's important for us to express it. So I want you to look with me this morning at this psalm. I want you to notice in verses 1 through 6, complaint to God, and then in 7 through 10, comfort in God. So let's look at verses 1 through 6. This psalm is almost by all Bibles separated in this way, these two sections, verses 1 through 6, then verses 7 through 10. So let's look at 1 through 6 and see here David's complaint to God. David's complaint to God. And what we're going to see in these first six verses is essentially this, that his complaint is about his enemies. He has enemies, he has, he has men who are literally seeking his life, who are literally seeking to take his life. He has enemies. As we've seen this summer, as we've walked through these psalms consecutively in this part of the book of Psalms, David has enemies who are seeking to take his life. And so his complaint is about his enemies. Look at verse 1. We see that there. Hear my voice, O God. In my complaint, preserve my life from the dread of the enemy. The dread of the enemy. David is complaining about his enemies. And what we're going to see in the next several verses, let me just summarize very quickly, is this, that his enemies were cunning and deceitful. That his enemies were concealed when they shot arrows at their enemies, at David particularly, and the blameless. And that their purpose and that their tactics, these enemies, were shameful and indefensible. So notice several things as he describes his enemies. And there's several things here I want you to see. First of all, in verse 1, notice he describes their effect. Their effect. They were having an effect on David. These enemies were. Again, verse 1, hear my voice, O God, in my complaint, preserve my life from the dread. There's the effect. From the dread of the enemy. 
David's heart and mind were filled with dread. He was afraid because these men were serious about taking his life. Dread is something that can be paralyzing. Fear is something that is often paralyzing. When we begin to experience fear, when we begin to experience dread, something happens to our minds, and our minds cease to function as they should. We can't think clearly when we're afraid. We can't think calmly when we're afraid. Our thoughts are foggy, and we're frantic when we're filled with fear. That's what David was experiencing. And he seeks, as he begins this psalm, he seeks deliverance from this state of mind and the things that he dreads. He asks God to deliver him, to preserve his life from the dread of the enemy. That is, his thoughts of dread, knowing what they wanted to do to him, and also the things that he dreaded, the things that they intended to do to him. So this was their effect. They affected David in this way. He was filled with dread. Then, in verse 2, we learn something about, as David describes, their character. Their character. Verse 2, hide me. David continues as he prays to God, Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the throng of evildoers. Notice the words wicked and evildoers. Again, these words describe the character of those who were David's enemies. They were wicked. They were evildoers, but most likely... They were his brethren in terms of the nation of Israel. It's very likely that he's talking here about men who grew up as men who had been raised and taught the law of Moses and the things of God. And yet they were wicked and they were evildoers. That was at the heart of who they really were even though they knew better, their character. And then also in verse 2, notice something else that he describes about his enemies. Notice their number also in verse 2. The end of the verse says, from the throng, the throng of evildoers, he's asking God to hide him, to protect him from this throng. Now that word implies a significant number, many enemies, So David describes in verses 1 and 2 their effect, their character, and their number. And then in verse 3, and here's where I want you to notice something really important. Notice he describes their weapons. His enemies have weapons that they're using against him. Notice what the weapons were. Verse 3, he says about his enemies, who wet their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows. He compares their tongues to swords, weapons, and he compares their words to arrows, weapons. So 
these men who were seeking his life physically, the thing that David focuses on here in this psalm is their words and the way that they wounded him and the way that they harmed him. It seems certain that these enemies of David were bringing false allegations and accusations against David to turn people against David so that ultimately they would be able to and feel justified in killing him if they were able to or others might join them in this effort to take the life of David at this point. Words. Most of us grew up, or probably many of us grew up hearing this statement, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never harm me. That's true in one sense, but very false in another way. Words have devastating effects on us, what people say, the way people speak to us, the way people speak about us, it matters. And Jesus said it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. And these people who most likely grew up being taught God's word, who are David's enemies, were revealing in their words who they really were. They weren't godly, even though they had been raised to know God, the one true God. They weren't godly. And all of us should regularly remember that really it is our words more than anything else biblically that reveal who we really are. And that's what we see here among these who are the enemies of David. So we see their weapons that David describes. Then in verse 4, he describes their methods. Their methods, verse 4, shooting from ambush at the blameless shooting at him suddenly and without fear. Notice the word ambush, and notice the word suddenly and without fear. This was how they operated. These were their methods. They acted from secret places. They attacked from a hiding place. And they didn't fear. They had no fear of doing what they were doing and saying what they were saying against David. Methods that are unjustifiable in any sense. And then also in verse 4, he tells us something else. He describes their targets. David's not the only target of these people. Notice it says, shooting from ambush at the blameless. He's not just talking about himself here. He's talking about those who are blameless, who are true to the covenant that God has made with his people Israel and those who by faith have been made right before God. This doesn't mean they were sinless. Blameless doesn't mean sinless. But it does mean that a person has a reputation for consistently doing that which is pleasing to God. Again, not perfectly, but progressively a person who is conforming more and more to the person of Jesus Christ. The blameless. I can't help but think about the first thing that is said in the New Testament about what an elder and a pastor is supposed to be. The first qualification is that they be blameless. Again, not sinless, 
but above reproach in the sense that there is not consistent inconsistency between what they profess and what they do and what they say. Their targets, the blameless. This again highlights the fact that most likely this hostility toward David and others who were blameless from those who in character were wicked and evildoers was because of the fact that they were unrighteous and David and the others were righteous. This is persecution for righteousness' sake. This is persecution for righteousness' sake. And as we seek to follow Christ, we're going to experience that. Now, sometimes we can, at times, in our righteousness, be self-righteous. And when we are, then at least in part, what we're facing is not just because of our being righteous, but for us being unrighteous by being self-righteous. Does that make sense? We must continually seek to live in a way that is blameless, that seeks to honor God. And then finally in this first section, in verses 5 and 6, I want you to see one more thing he says as he describes his enemies. Their thoughts. Their thoughts. He knows the way they think and therefore what they say. Because he knows these people well. Verse 5, they hold fast to their evil purpose. By the way, that's what people who don't love God do. They hold fast to their evil purpose. Those who know God may engage in evil practice, but they don't hold fast to an evil practice or purpose. Because Christ is changing one who knows him. And I can't help but think about the fact that while the evildoers hold fast to their evil purposes, God holds fast to us who are trusting in him. He will never let us go. They hold fast to their evil purposes. They talk of laying snares secretly, thinking, here it is, who can see them? They think that no one can see them. Now again, remember, most likely these folks grew up under the teaching of the writings of Moses, if not more of what we have in our Old Testament also. And so they should know and would have known and would know intellectually that God sees everything. And yet they were living in a way that demonstrated that this is what they thought. That no one would see them, that they would never have to answer for what they were seeking to do and doing. That they would never have to give an account and be held accountable for their sin. Again, even though intellectually they knew that God sees, they lived and spoke as if God didn't. Someone said this, and I think it's super helpful. We live what we believe. All the rest is just religious talk. We live what we believe. All the rest is just religious talk. And that's the way it was for these men. Verse 6, they search out injustice. That is, what they were doing was unjust, and they did a lot of planning. They did research. They searched out that which they were going to do against David, which was 
unjust. And saying, he says, we have accomplished a diligent search for the inward mind and heart of a man are deep. So there are a couple of things I want you to see here as we think about the essence of their thinking in verses 5 and the beginning of verse 6. What was the essence of their thinking? Number one, no one sees what we do in secret. That's the way they thought. Even though they might not have said that, that's really what they believed and thought. No one sees what we do in secret. Some of you will remember Hagar in the Old Testament, and she was the victim of Sarah's malice, and as a result of that, she called God the one who sees. The one who sees. That gave her comfort because she was being unfairly treated. That gave David comfort here at this point in his life because he knew God could see. But while it gives us a sense of assurance to know that God can see when people are doing evil to us, this truth also gives us a sense of accountability knowing that God sees us and what we do in secret, and what we say behind closed doors. The essence of their thinking was this. No one sees what we do in secret, and our plan, this was also at the essence of their thinking, our plan is extensive and foolproof. That's what they thought. We've searched it out. We've thought of everything. They had done extensive research to succeed and believed that they would succeed, that their plan was foolproof. That's the essence of their thinking. Verse 5 in the beginning of verse 6, but then at the end of verse 6, I want you to see also the error of their thinking. Look at how verse 6 ends, for the inward mind and heart of a man are deep. Now when we say someone's mind is deep, we typically mean by that that they're intelligent, that they're deep thinkers, but that's not what this means. This means more like this. Think of going down into the depths of the water till you get to the bottom, and at the bottom it's really murky, and it's hard to see with your eyes open down at the bottom of the deep, the deep end of the water. That's the picture here. Our hearts and our minds are prone to self-deception. That's what he's saying here. These men who are David's enemies are self-deceived. There's a depth to their minds and their hearts that they don't know, that they don't see. They don't see the sin and the muck at the bottom of their hearts and at the bottom of their minds. The error of their thinking. And then finally, let's look at quickly verses 7 through 10. We've talked about complaint to God, now comfort in God. David's comfort in God, verses 7 through 10. But God shoots his arrows at them. They are wounded suddenly. Remember, he described their words against David as arrows, and then he says, but God shoots his arrows at them. They are wounded suddenly. In other words, God judges them. They are brought to ruin with their own tongues turned against them. Their words boomerang and come back upon them and harm them. Verse 9 or excuse me, the rest of eight, all who see them will wag their heads. Verse 9, then all mankind fears. They tell what God has brought about and ponder what he has done. 
Let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. Let all the upright in heart rejoice or exult. Here we see in these last verses what David foresees, the consequences and the condemnation of evil. He knows it's coming. Judgment is coming. It's still future, but David is able to exult because of his faith in the promises of God that God will do what is right to those who are his enemies. The conspirators, those who are in conspiracy against David, will ultimately be defeated by their own weapons. We might call it poetic justice. That's the way God often judges sinners. But here's the good news, folks, this morning. Though all of us are sinners, Jesus took the judgment that we deserve and will face one day for our sin apart from trusting in Jesus as our one and only Savior and following Jesus as our one and only Lord. The Bible says God made him Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And ultimately, there will be a judgment. Complaint? Yeah. It's natural, it's normal for people with strong faith to feel and to express complaint because of what we experience in this life. But we process it, we take it to God, and in the end we can exult in knowing who God is and what God will do and what God has done for us in Jesus Christ so that we don't have to face the judgment that we deserve because of our sins. God has judged sin in Jesus. For all who trust in Christ... And because of this, at the end, God can destroy evil without destroying us. And we can have eternal life because of His grace. Let's bow. Father, today we thank You that Jesus has taken this judgment that is coming for those who don't repent that he's taken this judgment that we deserve, but because of your grace and faith, we are able to be united to Christ and to be declared blameless and righteous in your sights, in your sight, God. We praise you for this, and we pray, we pray, God, that you would work in our hearts and in our lives this morning. I pray for those who are here who haven't trusted yet in you but would do so, I pray that they would do so today, that they would trust in Christ as their only hope and that they would follow him and seek to glorify him. Thank you, Lord, that we can be confident that you will keep us as your people in in spite of the things that bring dissatisfaction and dread, that you will keep us and save us from the only thing that really can harm us, and that is eternal death. And we praise you for that today, that you will keep us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.